0: Thank you. I've cried many rivers, I've walked through some pain. I've seen my world crumble, and I'll carry the shame. But I know somebody, he calls me his own. I hear heaven singing out, you're never alone. No, you're never alone. We're never alone because the Lord is with us. And because the Lord is with us, the joy of the Lord is our strength. Our theme as a church for 2019 is Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Well, what is that joy? What is that joy that we can have and God wills and desires for us to have as His body as his church, and what is that joy that he wants us to have? Well, Nehemiah 8.10 holds the answer to what that joy is and how we can have it, how we can live in it. As you turn there in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8, allow me to give you the background of this passage of Scripture. In the original Hebrew text of the Old Testament, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are considered one book. In fact, many scholars believe that what Ezra did is he took Nehemiah's writings and added them as sort of an appendix to his own writing of what we know as the Book of Ezra. Book of Nehemiah is the continuing story of the reestablishment of the Jewish community in southern Palestine. And the book is written as a personal diary by Nehemiah. Now, let me sort of set the stage for this. In the history of Israel, the Babylonian armies had smashed into Jerusalem, destroying the walls of Jerusalem, penetrating into the city, and then destroying the temple, the palace, and devastating the countryside. They had killed many of the people. They had then acted to deport most of the people out of Jerusalem in Israel. It was common in those days that when a conquering army came in into Elam that one of the ways they devastated the land was not only to knock down all the buildings, burn out all the crops, but to deport the people, particularly the leaders. Because they knew if they could deport the leaders and those with education, it would really make it difficult for that nation to organize and rebel against them. And so Israel was decimated. On one particular occasion, they took 47,000 residents out of Jerusalem and deported them. And the city lay there in ruins with basically just the very poorest of the poor living there. Into that condition in 445 B.C., Nehemiah and Ezra come to Jerusalem. Now these two guys worked together as a team, but they had two very different functions. Ezra served as sort of the religious leader, and it was his job to call the people and help the people get back to serving the Lord and understanding what it meant to serve the Lord. Nehemiah, on the other hand, had more political leadership and came there to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, which would have functioned as the main defensive posture for the city and then to begin to basically rebuild the place. So working together as a team, addressing these two areas, Ezra and Nehemiah show up on the scene there in this devastated area of Jerusalem and in Judea. Now, there's another problem that they had, and this is sort of interesting. When all these folks got deported, they got over in Babylon, and at first they're, you know, just wiped out because their land has been taken, etc. But then they begin to sink their roots into the place. They begin to be assimilated into the culture of Babylon, and they begin to prosper. And so as they begin to prosper and to enjoy life, they didn't particularly want to go back to Israel. I mean, if you're in Babylon, which is the, at that time the leading world power of its day. You're enjoying all the aspects of living in Babylon, the safety of their army, the prosperity of the nation. Why do you want to go back to where you're from if it's laying in ruins and devastated and just poor people living there? And so most of the folks wanted to stay there in Babylon. But Nehemiah is just really crushed about what's going on with his home country and the home city of Jerusalem and so he goes back and when he gets there he brings a small group of exiles who return and he meets up with those folks who were there who were in poverty and they begin to experience an outpouring of God's spirit and what we would call a revival of God's work. Now so many times you see this patterned in scripture and that is the devastation of the people of God sets the stage for an outpouring and a work of the Spirit of God. And it is easy for us when we go through difficult times to sit back and say, man, we're going to stay this way forever, and we might as well just give up without realizing that when God brings us to our knees and puts us on our face before Him, that is the best place to be. Because when God gets us to that place, we are open to receive from Him whatever He wants to pour out, and we are open at that point to do whatever He instructs us to do. And so Ezra stands before the people in what was called one of the gates of the city. It's customary for the people to meet at the gates to receive information, to receive instruction. And so they get to come to this gate, and there at that gate they gather to hear from Ezra. Now what Ezra does is he constructs a platform which can contain him and about 13 other people. He stands on top of this platform on what would become the New Year's Day for them, and later the, the day of the Feast of Trumpets, and he begins to address the people. And he begins to read to them from the law of God. Probably we think from what we would know was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, particularly Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The instructions and the laws for the people. Now, get the scene. You're there in these newly refurbished walls, you're there at the gate. You've got this raised platform, Ezra standing there with 13 other leaders, and he begins to read to the people the word of God. Now, they had, this generation had never heard what he begins to read. This is news to them. They have been in exile. They haven't been up at the temple every week. The temple was destroyed. They hadn't been in synagogues. And so they begin to hear the word of God and the law of God for the first time, as Ezra begins to read it to them. And as they stand there, can you imagine this, for five hours from early in the morning till noon, and listen to Ezra read. If you had watched them, this is what you would have seen. Verses 5 through 9 describe the scene there. It says that as he began to read the Word of God, they stood in respect of the Word of God. As he was reading, you would have begun to hear the people say, Amen, Amen. In other words, so be it. We agree with that. We're going to live in conformity to what we are hearing. Then they begin to lift their hands up in worship to the Lord. Then they bow their heads and put their faces to the ground. Now, Now, Again, get the picture of this. Ezra is standing there and he is reading the Word of God to them. And as he reads the Word of God, and these people hear the Word of God for the first time, they don't just sort of sit back and say, well, that's nice. First they stand because they say, this is a Word from God, and we need to stand in respect of God's Word. Then they get on their faces before the Lord and begin to worship the Lord as they are listening to His Word. Then they begin to weep before the Lord as they begin to understand, and the Word of God is explaining it to them. And then in verse 12, they begin to rejoice before the Lord as they understand what He has said. Now, I'm going to read from Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 9 through 12. And I would like us, as we follow their example, to stand in honor of the Word of God as we read God's Word together. Nehemiah chapter 8, I'm going to begin with verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe, And the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So all the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy, and do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and to send portions, and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. You may be seated. The people stand, the people bow, the people worship, the people begin to weep in repentance and in a sense of being connected to God and then Nehemiah and Ezra look at them and say stop your weeping it's time to rejoice the joy of the Lord is your strength the joy Of the Lord. Not the joy of your circumstances. Not the joy of relationships that you have or don't have with other people. Not the joy of how life is going or the way you want it to go. Not the joy of the condition of this city. The strength that you will have in your life, the strength that we will have as a people, is the joy of the Lord. His joy. Now who is this Lord? Verse 8. It is the personal name of God, Yahweh. As best we could understand, the ancient Hebrews would have pronounced His name. And my sermon outline is containing your bulletin if you'll follow along with me. The name Yahweh occurs 6,828 times in biblical Hebrew. When God gave His name to His people, He didn't just give His name to His people one time. 6,828 times it appears in biblical Hebrew in the Old Testament. What he's trying to say, I want you to know my name. And because I want you to know my name, I'm going to keep repeating my name. And you're going to get it 6,800 plus times. ...over and over and over again. If you give your name to somebody... ...and you give your name repeatedly to somebody... ...and you make sure they know your name... ...what are you trying to say to them? I want you to know me... I want you to have a relationship with me. I want this relationship to go somewhere. And that's the reason he gave his name over 6800 times in the Old Testament to his people is he was trying to say to them, I'm not just giving you a name. I am offering you a relationship. If you will take up take me up on it. The joy of who of Yahweh is your strength. Now what does that name mean? And I, I there's just hard to go into all the expressions of His name. Let me give you several aspects of it, okay? First of all, the name that's translated Lord, capital L-O-R-D, in our English translations, Yahweh, in best we can tell the ancient Jews would have pronounced it, the personal name of God, it means the God who exists. He is the very essence of existence. He is the ground of reality, He is original reality. God was saying by the giving of this name before anyone else existed and before anything else did exist, I existed. I got the whole thing started. I have always existed. I am the original ground of reality. That means that the original ground of reality of existence is not in something, it is in someone. It means it is not a gas. It is not a bunch of molecules and atoms floating around. It is rather reality is grounded in a person. And because of that, it means that life and reality has meaning. It has purpose. It has direction. Because the meaning and purpose of reality is grounded in the Lord God Almighty. He first gave that name in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. When he comes to Moses... And he says, I am that I am. My name to you that I give to you in covenant with you, in relationship with you, Yahweh. It also carries the idea of his changeless commitment to his people. God was saying to his people back in Exodus, and this was a generation of folks that had never experienced the presence of God until the Exodus. They had heard stories upon stories by their ancestors. And they had heard how God had created the world. And they heard how God had been the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they heard stories of what God had been back then. But God was saying to his this new generation... Listen, I am here and I am present and I am as committed to you as I was to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I am working in your life as much today as I did in the life of your ancestors yesterday and I want to introduce myself to you. I want to build relationship with you today. Oh, folks, I can't say this enough. Many of us may come from backgrounds where we had a grandmother or a grandfather or a great-grandmother or a great-grandfather, and they loved the Lord and they worked the Lord. Work for the Lord, and we've heard stories about what God did in their lives in days gone by, and that's great. But God is saying to you and God is saying to us, I have a new work and I have a fresh work that I want to do in this generation, in your life, right now. I want you to rejoice in what I did in days go by, but I want you to know that I am as prevalent and relevant today as I have ever been. That's what God was saying to Moses and to his people. But I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the people that are standing there in Jerusalem this day with Ezra and Nehemiah. And Ezra and Nehemiah look at them and they say, Listen, the joy of Yahweh is going to be your strength. As you look around Jerusalem and you know that we've got all these neighbors around here who are not excited that you are back in Jerusalem, who are not excited about these walls that have just been rebuilt that are antagonistic and would love to attack this city and wipe you out. I want you to know that as you look at the opposition that the joy of the Lord is your strength. But listen, you are a new generation. You're a people who have been living in exile. You've been in Babylon. You have not known what it is to go to the temple and worship here in Jerusalem because the temple has been in ruins. It was even then. You haven't gone to the synagogue. You have just heard the Word of God for the first time. But I want you to know, folks, that even though you are scripturally ignorant, Even this whole business about serving and worshiping God is something that is brand new to you. I want you to know that Yahweh is here, that He is present, that He loves you, and His joy will be your strength. 2,000 years ago, in that stable outside of Bethlehem, Jesus was born as a baby. And the prophet said, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. Why did God choose to place his son into this world as a baby? Why did God choose for that baby to have to go through all of the stages of preschool and elementary and adolescence into young adulthood? because you can't be any more with people than to go through every stage of life with them. God was saying to that generation, that generation that had gone through 400 years of silence from God, that generation that thought God had walked away from them and forgotten about them, that generation that thought that the Roman Empire dominated everything, God was saying to that generation, I am with you. I am committed to you. That's why I'm starting this journey off as a baby. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6, the Apostle Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let me read it again. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it where? To completion, when? When Jesus comes again at the day of Jesus Christ. You see, God's commitment to us is not that He said, well, I, you know, I brought you to me and you got saved on a particular day and that was all nice and wonderful and you can talk about it and uh, just wait till you get to heaven someday and it will be good again. God's saying, my commitment to you is right now. What I started working in your life, I'm going to bring it to completion until my son comes again. You can be sure of this. I'm going to bring the work that I started in you. Why can he say that? Because he has made as Yahweh through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, a commitment to us that once he's in, he's never leaving. We are stuck with Jesus. I don't know about you, but I am glad I am stuck with Jesus. Jesus. And you know something, I'm stuck with a lot of junk in my life, but because I am stuck with Jesus, I can deal with the junk in my life because I'm stuck with Jesus. And Jesus is stuck with me. Some days I don't want to even be stuck with me. But Jesus is stuck with me. And He's stuck with me because He wants to be stuck with me. He is stuck with you because He wants to be stuck with you. And you may look at yourself in the mirror someday and say, how could God love me? How could God want me to be stuck with Him? Because that is the love of God. And the thing I love about the love of God is I don't have to understand it. I don't have to explain it. All i got to do is live in it and accept it and enjoy it. The joy of the Lord, the joy of Jesus is that He is stuck with us and we are stuck with Him he began a good work in us, but He will complete it. And folks, notice what He says. He's going to complete it to the day of Jesus. I'm so glad He added He will complete that work at the day of Jesus Christ. He did not say that He will begin, He who's begun a good work in us is going to stop that work just because we got problems. He's going to stop that work because something else can enter into our lives that's stronger than what He's doing that discouragement and depression and opposition and victimization or whatever it is or sins or addictions that we deal with in our lives or the screwed up, messed up stuff we've done in our past, that that's got the power to stop what He's bringing to completion. Nothing can stop what He's doing in our lives. Nothing can block it. Nothing can hold it up because He has set His mind to it. That was the message that he was giving to his people that day in Jerusalem, and that is the message that he was given in Bethlehem, and that is the message that Paul is giving again and reiterating in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. The joy of the Lord. Now, the joy. The word, there's a number of different Hebrew words that are used for joy. This is a particularly interesting word, it means shouting and cheering. And the Hebrews used this particular word for joy. It meant shouting and cheering. Now we're Baptist, and I know we don't do a lot of shouting and cheering, okay? <laughs> Probably ought to. What is he saying here? He's saying, folks, the joy that the Lord is going to give you has to find expression. You can't hold this joy. You, you, you can't keep this joy to yourself. Even if you wanted to, you couldn't hold it back. you got to shout it. you got to cheer about it. When God goes to doing a work in your life and you begin to get in touch with it, you are going to get a smile on your face. I, like, I have an Easter sermon I preached. Has the resurrection shown up on your face yet? Because if Jesus is alive and well and resurrected, you can't keep it to yourself. It comes out. And he's saying, folks, and these people are standing there and they've been crying and they've been facing opposition. They've come out of exile and they just worn themselves out, rebuilding the walls. And Nehemiah and Ezra look at them and they say, Listen, folks, his joy is going to be your strength. Stop weeping and start shouting, stop crying and start cheering. Because God is here, and God is at work. Now, what is that quality of what He's doing in our lives? If you'll turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now notice what he's saying here. You're rejoicing, but your rejoicing is taking place during this brief time on earth because you've been grieved by various... You're going through trials. 1 Peter is written to a group of Christians who were being severely persecuted for their faith. They were going through all kinds of trials to serve the Lord. And he says you're being grieved. Verse 7, so that the tested Genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying here to these believers, your faith is being tested right now. It's being tested like gold that goes through the fire. Why is that happening? So that the result of the testing of your faith will be praise, glory, and honor as Jesus Christ is being revealed. Now let me pause here for a minute. What Peter is saying to these believers is you're going through a difficult period of trials right now and God is testing your faith. He is testing your faith to purify your faith and make your faith genuine just like gold. Why? Because everybody is in this room, your faith either has been tested, your faith is being tested, or your faith is going to be tested. We've either been through it, going through it, or we're getting ready to go through it. So why does God allow that? For the praise and glory and honor of Jesus Christ. Now, if I'm living my life and want God to live His life for me, for my comfort, that I'm in tough shape. Because the will of God and the design of God is that whatever I go through in life, there is a purpose and there is a reason for it. And the reason is that Jesus be praised, Jesus receive glory, and Jesus receive honor. Though you have not seen Him, that is Jesus, you love Him. Though you do not see Him, you believe in Him. And then notice this, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Now notice what precedes the joy that is inexpressible and is filled with the glory of God. And the glory of God is a conglomerate term that refers to the love of God, the holiness of God, the power of God, the awesomeness of God, etc. What precedes the experience of being filled with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? it's going through a period of trials. It's having the faith purified through a period of trials. See, what most of us want is we want a rejoicing that comes as the result of how comfortable and easy God has made our lives. So if God's showing up and he's answering our prayers on time and the way we want him to and he's making life comfortable and making life easy and things are going smooth, we got joy. But if life hits those rough patches and the trials come and we feel like we're in the fire, we don't have joy. But what he's saying here is if you and I want to live and walk in a joy. ...that is inexpressible and that is filled with the glory of God. I can't lop off the verses that preceded this one. i got to live through them to get to this place. And living through them means I have to go through the difficulty, through the trials. My faith has to be tested like it's in fire. Because after my faith has been tested, he says, We are then, and only then, but really then, are going to be filled with a joy that is inexpressible... ...and filled with the glory of God. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Periodically in the years that I've been a pastor, I have had the privilege of sitting down with some senior adults who have gone through just heartbreaking situations, sometimes multiple times over in life. And when I sit down and I talk with them and I listen to them and I look into their faces and I see peace and I see joy, what I am seeing and what I am hearing is this joy that is filled with the glory of God. I don't hear the story of an easy, comfortable life. I normally hear the story of severe, heartbreaking losses. But I also hear the story of how God stood with them, and how God was with them, and how God provided the grace that they needed, not a year at a time, but one moment at a time. They found Jesus, and they found a deeper walk with him in the midst of it, and took another step, and took another step. One of the men that I've come to be good friends with since I've been here, many of you all know him, is Larry Holland, the retired pastor um, of Franklin Heights Baptist Church and Larry lost his son uh, years ago in a tragic accident and Larry often in our conversations uh, alludes to that because when you lose a child you, you never get over it but what I've discovered in conversations and in times that Larry and I have spent together is yes that grief of losing a son you never get over but Larry's never gotten over the grace of God and getting through that. And He finds grace every day to work through that grief. And that is what I believe the Scriptures talk about when they talk about joy inexpressible and filled with glory. God wants to take whatever you're going through, whatever trial you're going through, and if you walk through the trial with Jesus and hang on to Jesus, He will fill that trial those moments with His glory. And that is when He shapes and molds us to be like Jesus. Notice what it says here. The joy of the Lord is your what is your strength. The word means it is a fortress around you. It's a defense that guards against the attacks of Satan. Now how does the strength of God in us do that? How does the joy of God do that? Well, first of all, when we face temptation... And we are tempted to go over here and engage in sin when we realize that my ultimate, final peace and satisfaction is in Jesus, not in sin, then it becomes a fortress around me. I don't need that sin because I've got Jesus. And nothing's any better than Jesus. No one, no something, no matter what the temptation is, it can't beat Jesus Folks, I can't say this to us enough as we go into a next new year. If we will find our joy, our satisfaction in the person, in the work, in all that Jesus Christ is, we will not be drawn to sin. Sin can never compete on any day with the glory of Jesus Christ. The problem is when I get satisfied with what I call a surface relationship with Jesus instead of a deep relationship with Jesus, when I get satisfied with what He taught me yesterday and what I experienced of Him last year instead of what He's got for me in this moment, then I get drawn into the temptation. But when my walk with Him is fresh and new every morning and when I'm experiencing what He's got for me in each day of who He is... Not His provision, but the provider. Who Jesus is, what Jesus is, and what Jesus is doing. I am not going to be drawn to sin. Second, discouragement. In discouragement, the joy of the Lord is a fortress around us because it keeps us focused on Jesus, and it keeps us looking up to Him and not down at whatever is discouraging me. Fatigue. And what do you do when you just get tired in life? He is my energy. That's where that cheering and shouting kicks in. He is my energy. You've heard me talk about, give that story before that dear old saint. He says, I'm going to fight the devil as long as I can. He said, as long as I can swing, I'm going to swing at him. As long as I can kick, I'm going to kick at him. And if I can't kick and I can't swing, he said, I'll bite him. And when I lose my teeth, I'll gum him till Jesus comes. <laughs> but the idea there is I'm never going to let the fatigue of life wear me down. And folks, when you and I get worn down in life, walking around talking about it just going to make us more fatigued. But when we get worn down in life, go to the Lord and say, God, I'm getting tired, I'm getting worn out. But I need a fresh touch from you and I need an infusion into my soul and a release through my soul of your glory, your joy, your power. He gives the energy, the sense of worthlessness. Jesus is my worth and He gives me worth. Say that again. Jesus is my worth and Jesus gives me worth. The joy of the Lord is our strength. His joy is the shouting and cheering of the soul of God into our soul. He is the never-changing ground of reality, and He is our fortress around us. I've cried many rivers. I've walked through some pain. I've seen my world crumble, and I carry the shame. But I know somebody. He calls me His own. I can hear heaven singing out You are never alone. Acts 16, the Apostle Paul and Silas are caught for releasing a lady, oddly enough, from the powers of darkness. Beaten up, put in jail, there with their backs exposed, still bleeding, hurting, throbbing in pain. Midnight rolls around, and this sound begins to be heard In the jail. It is not the sound of two men complaining about how bad they feel. It is not the sound of two men talking about how unfair life is. It is not the sound of two guys saying, I don't understand why God didn't deliver us from the beating. It is the sound of two men singing hymns in the darkness through the pain because the joy of the Lord was their strength. And of all people, the jailer and his family came to Christ that night because of the joy of the Lord in two men. That's the joy of the Lord. He wants you and I to have. That's the joy of the Lord. He wants all of us to have. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you are calling us to live and to walk in your joy. That you have invited us and you are pleading with us to know the joy that you have, the joy that is in you, that inexpressible joy, that joy that is filled with your glory. And God, we want that. We thirst for that. We don't want to just wish for it. We want to live in that joy. We want to walk in that joy. And so, Lord, this morning, we surrender ourselves to you so that you can fill us with your joy. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ and you want to make that decision to say, I want the joy of the Lord in my life because I want Jesus in my life. I want to know what it is to be stuck with Him and Him to be stuck with me. And I want to invite you in just a moment as we sing to walk the aisle here and to say, today I want to give my life to Jesus. I want to know Him. I want to walk with Him. I want to follow Him. I want to serve Him. I invite you to come. If you sense that God's leading you to become part of our church family, then I invite you to come and join with us here as we serve the Lord together. If you want to come and kneel around the front and pray, we invite you to come. If you sense that God may be speaking to you and saying, I want you in full-time Christian ministry, then why don't you surrender to the call of God on your life in whatever capacity it might be. Lord, have your way with us in these moments, we pray, as we respond to your call to your holy nudging in our lives, and to whatever you're saying to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.